Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So nice to see you all this morning. Again, uh, wonderful worship music. I, I love that final song that we sang. Indeed, isn't that the testimony of every one of us that God has never failed us yet? He has never forgotten us. By his spirit, may we never forget him. All that he's done and all that he's planned for us as revealed in Scripture. The passage that our brother Gilson read to us, the entire 44th chapter of Genesis, it's a pretty straightforward passage. It's easy to understand what is going on in that chapter with Joseph and his brothers. Uh, there's not a lot of hidden things there that aren't plain. It's, it's pretty straightforward for the most part. But what strikes me is the key verse of that passage. And you may have noticed it yourself. Remember, one of the ways to identify the point of the passage, the message of a passage of narrative, a story like we just read, a true story, story's not a bad word, there are true stories, is you look for something that mentions God because God and Christ are the main characters in Scripture. Not you and I. Not Joseph, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not the apostles. It is God and Christ. And there was one verse and one verse only in that chapter that our brother Gilson read that spoke about God. Did you catch it? Well, we'll look at it in just a moment. But the thought that is brought out there in that verse, that dictates how everything else before and after that verse, everything before and after in the chapter has to relate to that thought in some way. It's not just a collection of verses. It's a story that flows. It's a message that has continuity that flows. And so we're going to see how everything in that chapter relates to that one key verse. But because of the nature of that verse, this will be a gospel message. Because what was stated as true in that key verse is true of every single one of us here this morning. Whether you are a believer in Christ or whether you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, that idea is true. And the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses that need. So I want you to stick with me on this because when we find out what that is, it's not going to be something we want to hear about. But trust me, by the end of the message, if you stay with me, you'll hear the good news that comes out of this. The title of today's message, if you like titles, is The Sovereignty of God in Justice and Judgment. 
In this chapter, God is revealed as the one who knows everything we do. And that comes from the key verse of the chapter. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message, I'd like it to be this, that God wants you to consider that he sees, that he knows everything that you do, everything that you think, every desire of your heart, every motive for what you do and say. God knows it all. There are no surprises to him. And yet, he loves us still the same. Amazing. Amazing. Dwell on that at home when you're alone, and it'll bring tears to your eyes. Take this away, that God wants you to consider that he sees everything you do. And remember, he loves you still the same. It doesn't change. The key verse is verse 16. Three questions are asked, rhetorical questions. The answers are clear. What can we say to my Lord? The answer is nothing. What can we speak? Not a word. How can we justify ourselves before the Lord? We can't. Why? God has found out our iniquity. That is the key thought. That's the only time God is mentioned. Everything in this chapter relates to the fact that God has found out the iniquity of Joseph's brothers. Remember, they plotted to put him to death, and instead they sold him for profit as a slave to a caravan going to Egypt. That was their iniquity. What is yours and mine? God has found out that iniquity. We're going to look at this passage, this chapter, under three headings. God's justice and judgment will come to pass. That's a bummer. God, it, God's judgment will come to pass on each person. The second point is that God's justice and judgment is based upon our sins. I know what you're thinking. Preacher, you're bringing me down. And I don't blame you. If that's all there was to the story, it would be terrible. But lastly, God's justice and judgment includes unexpected grace. And we're going to see the components of that grace that are actually brought out in this chapter. So let's begin looking at God's justice and judgment that will definitely come to pass. The first thing we want to see in the opening verses, Joseph commanded, fill the man, men's sack with food as much as they can carry. Put each man's money once again back into the sack. They had everything. They, they had more than they expected because their money was once again returned. 
they were going to be experiencing prosperity and ease. What they took back would last them a full year, as it did the first time. Later on in, in Genesis, we, we will see that it was two years, two years of the famine from the time they, the famine began and they went down to Egypt till the time they came back with Jacob and the rest of the family. They were carrying back a lot of grain to make bread, and they had their money. They were going to be at ease and not be affected by the famine for a year or two until they would need to go back a third time, but that was going to be unnecessary. Prosperity and ease is what they were experiencing, but these are not signs that God's justice and judgment will not come to pass. It doesn't matter who it is, whether it be the wealthiest individual in the world or a destitute pauper. God's justice and judgment will always come to pass. The ease of our life is not an indication that it will never come to pass. Jesus Christ himself told a similar story. He told a story about a man who had a fantastic harvest, more than he ever could have expected. He took that harvest, he filled his barns, there was barely room for it. And he knew with all this extra grain, he could plant even more next year. What is he going to do with that harvest? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns. His focus was only on the now, the prosperity. He wasn't looking out for eternity. What was our Lord's comment on such an attitude? You fool, tonight your soul may be required of you. And then he said, what is a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Prosperity and ease are not signs that we will not answer to God in judgment. God's justice and judgment is never far off. We don't know when it's going to happen. God has not chosen to reveal that to you and I. If I knew, I would tell you. But we don't know. In verse 3, as soon as it was light, the men were sent away. They with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when. They were not far off. For all you and I know, God's justice and judgment is not far off from you and I. We don't know how much longer we have before the next step of God's plan takes place. We don't know how much longer we have individually on this earth. God's justice is for evil that is done in the face of the good that he has shown us. Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men 
and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Now, this was a false accusation here. Joseph put the money back in the sacks. Joseph put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. In, the, in this case, it was a false accusation. It was part of tormenting his brothers for what they did to him, part of wanting vengeance, perhaps also part not wanting his brothers to leave. But the point is, from the perspective of the story, evil is being repaid for good. And then in the life of every single one of us, believer and unbeliever, God has shown every one of us good. Jesus Christ himself stated this. Theologians call this common grace. And it comes out in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ said this, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We don't earn that sunshine. We don't merit that rain. Yet God sends it on everyone, both his children as well as the unsaved. That is God's grace shown to everyone. It's common to all mankind. That's just an example that he gave. I'm sure our Lord could have listed a thousand other graces. By the end of the message, we will cover the greatest grace God has ever shown this world. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 10, Paul writes this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, he repaid us good in Jesus Christ while we were his enemies. He repaid good for our evil when man repays God's good the sun the rain his beloved son we repay his good with evil and God's justice and judgment will be in view of that that fallen man sinful mankind has repaid God's goodness with evil rebellion and sin against him. When God's justice and judgment comes, and when we realize that it's going to come, denial is not how to deal with God's justice. The brothers are told, you have done, you have done wrong in doing this. But they said to him, not just one, they, all of them said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. They deny it. Now, in their case, they didn't know what was going on. But in our case, 
Our sin is our own. Our rebellion against God is our own. Denying it is not the way to deal with it. The scripture is very clear. There is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is God's testimony against you and I, against everyone. No one is righteous. No one is holy. We have all sinned against God. Denying this truth is the path to hell, the path to eternal condemnation. Part of repentance is admitting that we are hell-deserving sinners. Like the tax collector in, in Luke 18, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, but the sinner. Paul, the apostle of the Lord, called himself the chief of sinners. I know his words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I think he misunderstood. It's this Paul that was the chief of sinners. He thought it was him, but it's me. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Denial's not how to deal with God's justice. The only hope anyone has is to acknowledge God's holiness, God's righteous judgment, acknowledge that they are deserving of God's wrath and judgment upon them for their sinful rebellion against him. That's the starting point. And then as we'll see, turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. God's justice and judgment will exact a great price with whomever, no one will escape this, whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Eternal death, separation from God and Christ is the great price that God's justice and judgment will exact upon those who do not turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's a great price. It's an eternal price. Why? Because the debt is infinite. God is a perfectly holy God so far above us, infinitely far above us. Our sin against him is an infinite debt that we can never repay in and of ourselves. And so that death is an eternal death separated from God and Christ. No one should ever demand justice from God because if God gave us what we justly deserved, it would be eternal condemnation. Instead, he's going to give us something else, and that'll come out in the third point, that unexpected grace. God's justice and judgment falls only on the guilty. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He whom it is found the silver cup is found, shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. 
God only does what is right. The judge of all the earth does only what is right, according to Scripture. His justice and judgment falls only on the guilty. But as we've already said, we are all guilty before God. There's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A big difference from man exacting justice and judgment. Joseph here falsely accusing his brothers, even setting them up versus God exacting justice and judgment, which is right and proper and holy. God's justice and judgment cannot be avoided. The cup was found. They did return to the city. Every one of us has a rendezvous with destiny to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. Every one of us. We cannot escape it. Scripture says they'll pray for the, for the rocks and the hills to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But they're not going to be able to hide. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ. Just as that cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and they were forced to return to that city, so to every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. God's justice and judgment will be based on our sins. You, you, your judgment's not going to be based upon me, mine is not based upon yours. And one day, God's justice and judgment will demand an account. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, Joseph said, what is this deed that you have done? He demanded an account of them, and one day Christ will as well. God's justice and judgment will not accept any excuses. There will be no excuse. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord, nothing. What can we speak in our defense? Not a word. The cup was found. How can we justify ourselves? We can't. There will be no excuse. Oh, Lord, you didn't tell me. Oh, Lord, you didn't show me. Oh, Lord, you didn't make this plain. He will show us. He will tell us. And he'll reveal exactly how he made it plain. According to Romans chapter 1, every single person knows God. But they suppress the knowledge of God. They hold it down. They don't want that knowledge to be present, convicting them of their need of a Savior. They hold that knowledge of God down. They suppress it. In Romans chapter 1. In a very real sense, there are no atheists. They all know that God exists, but they suppress that knowledge. They deny his existence, but in their heart of hearts, they know he exists. There's no arguing with Romans 1. Everyone knows God, it's undeniable and yet they suppress that knowledge. There will be no excuses. 
fact, Scripture is very clear that in that judgment day, books will be open. A book of life, but also a book containing the deeds of everyone. Now, whether you believe those books are literal or figurative, the idea of the book is that everything is written down in it. There is no mistake. It can be read right from the book. Every deed, every sin. Here's the thought I have about that. It's written in our own handwriting. There'll be no denying it. Oh, no, Lord, I didn't do that. Wait, who wrote this? Whose handwriting is this? There'll be no denying it. It's written down. Oh, Lord, you're not remembering right. Okay, turn to page whatever from Johnson's life. Oh, it's right here. It's written down. Recorded when you did it. There will be no excuses. There's only one thing that can save us from that wrath and judgment. God's judgment and justice will only accept true heartfelt confession. It starts here, recognizing that God has found out our iniquity, our sin. He knows it. He's discovered it. It's never been hidden from him. God's justice and judgment only falls on the guilty. We are my Lord's slaves. Both we, this is what Judah is saying, both we, all his brothers, and the one, Benjamin, in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do this. This isn't just. It's only the one who has stolen the cup. It's not just to hold everybody accountable for that cup. Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. God's justice and judgment falls only on the guilty. But as we've already seen, we are all guilty before God. There has to be a judgment for sin. There's no escaping it. God would not be the perfectly holy God that he is if he turned a blind eye. And this is where the good news comes in. God's justice and judgment includes unexpected grace. Before I was a Christian, I, I probably didn't know what grace was. I can't remember that far back, you know, two, three hundred years when I was younger. I, I, I don't remember whether I understood the definition of the word grace. I'd never been brought up in church, never been in, in a church or synagogue in my life, so I, I probably didn't know what this word meant. I probably thought it was a woman's name. But what is grace? Grace, by definition is unmerited favor, an undeserved act of kindness, something you don't deserve, something you didn't work for, something that is freely given, something good that is given to you without charge, that you don't need to do anything for. 
You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You didn't acquire it through your own efforts. But it's given to you. Let's see how this unexpected grace comes out. It comes first from an unexpected source. Then Judah approached him. Judah. Judah was the one who looked at his brother, wanted, agreed with the others, let's throw him in the pit and we'll kill him later on after we eat. And then Judah says, aha, why should we kill him? Let's sell him and get something for him. And then who cares what happens to him? Judah, the one who's thinking only about money. He's just been told, you all can go. But instead, Judah, instead of fleeing for his life, regarding his life as more important than Benjamin's, he had regarded his life more important than Joseph's. And now Joseph's younger brother is on the hook because of that silver cup. But he doesn't do to Benjamin what he did to Joseph. From this most unexpected source, Judah, comes this grace. He approaches Joseph and he speaks to him, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. It comes from Judah. Guess who's the descendant of Judah? in the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus Christ. Both his mother Mary and his adoptive father Joseph are descendant from Judah. And Jesus Christ is as well. Can you imagine for a moment you, through no fault of your own perhaps, end up in great debt. Maybe some of it's your fault, some of it's circumstances you had no control over. And you're taken to court, and you owe more than you can ever pay. Maybe it's to the IRS. Grace is not in their vocabulary. You're guilty before them. Your bank accounts, oh, they belong to Uncle Sam. Your house, sell it. But the profit from it is still not enough to cover your debt. Your paycheck, we're going to take a third of that until your debt is paid up. But your debt is so great, you will die before it's paid up. Can you imagine standing there and the one to whom you owe an infinite debt, the one who has everything to gain from you paying that debt, says it's forgiven. You owe nothing. I'm writing it off. 
You'd never expect that from the IRS. But it's what God is willing to give to anyone who will turn to him. That debt, a big line through it. Or it's erased. It is gone. It as if it never existed because that debt was paid another way. Grace doesn't look out for itself. It considers the welfare of others. Judah approached him and said, when I come to my father, and when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray hair of our father down to Sheol, the grave, in sorrow. Judah's concern is not for profit for himself. He's concerned about others. His father, Benjamin the lad, he's concerned about what his father's death will do to his brothers. To the Corinthians, Paul writes this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's grace. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, became a man, and not the man that he could have been and deserved to be, the emperor of the world. He was born to a maiden. And his adoptive father was a carpenter, not the ruler of Israel, not the king of Israel, a carpenter. And he was ridiculed his whole life, falsely accused, slandered as an adult for every good thing he did attributed to Satan. And then he went to a cross bearing the sins of the world and he paid that price shedding his precious blood and dying to provide salvation graciously, a salvation that no one deserves, no one earned. He paid that infinite debt with his infinite life, his infinite holiness. He satisfied that debt of everyone You can have your debt paid in Jesus Christ. That debt must be paid. God is a holy God. He demands payment. But he provided the payment in his own son. Christ paid the debt that you and I never could pay. Our choice is do we want Christ to pay that debt or do we want to pay it for all eternity? 
God's justice and judgment graciously accepts a substitute. Judas says, your servant became surety, a guarantee for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, when he says forever, what he's getting at here is my sons, Judah's sons, because he had sons, as the scripture makes plain. They will never have an inheritance. They will be penniless. Dad, Jacob, don't give them anything. That's what he's getting at here. Not only is he going to bear the blame and not get an inheritance, but his descendants will never have an inheritance. They will never have blessing. He became that substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ became the substitute of everyone who calls on his name for salvation. He went to the cross. He bore our sins. God judged him, and the wrath of God fell on him on the cross after the three hours of darkness, after hanging there for six hours. At three in the afternoon, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God, who was in perfect fellowship with his Father for all eternity past, experienced something that we cannot fathom, the full wrath and judgment of God upon him. He didn't cry out for himself before that. He spoke four other times before that, always concerned for others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. He says to John and his mother, Behold your mother, behold your son. And he took the Lord's mother into his house from that hour. But he cried out only when God judged him. He bore the blame for our sin. The one who was rich became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. God's justice and judgment hears the pleas of the innocent one. Judah says, now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the, the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. He pleads this to Joseph. And it's going to move Joseph's heart, as you recall from our brother Gilson's reading. God hears the pleas of the innocent one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He is the innocent one, and he asks his father to forgive. Do you think his father's not going to forgive? Of course he is. God wants others to be part of the blessing. Even now, Scripture makes it very clear. In heaven, one of the things the Lord is doing is pleading our case. In Hebrews chapter 7, Christ is pictured as the high priest standing before God. And it's written, 
Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He is forever pleading our case before the Father. This is why you're always forgiven. It's never changed. It won't change. He'll never forget us. He'll never forsake us. You'll never lose your salvation that you have in Christ. Once you turn to him for salvation, he is your high priest forever pleading your case. Just as the high priest brought innocent blood of an unblemished, spotless lamb, so too Christ pleads his innocent blood on your behalf. Grace wants others to be part of the blessing. Christ wanted others to be part of the blessing of being with the Father. He told his disciples, I'm going to the Father. You won't see me for a while. And you can't come there now, but I'll return one day, and I will take you to be with myself. Judas says, how shall I go up to my Father if the lad is not with me? He didn't want to go alone. Christ doesn't want to be with the Father for all eternity without those that he shed his blood for. He will take us all, either by death or by rapture, to be with him. God wants others to be part of that blessing. He offers that blessing to you this morning. The scripture is very clear that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, not in your head, it's not academic knowledge. It's not like two plus two is four. Oh, I believe that. Put a gun to my head and it's whatever you want it to be. Three, five, you tell me what the correct answer is. It's not head knowledge. It's believe in your heart, the scripture says. That's an actual quote from Romans 10. If you believe with your heart, Jesus is Lord. Confess him as Lord with your mouth. Turn from your sin. Turn to him and cry out to him for salvation. He will save you. The scripture promises it. It says in Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He wants you to be part of the blessing of his salvation. Please, if you've never done it, if you've never turned to Christ for salvation and trusted in what he did on the cross, the work of salvation, he said, it is finished. It's done. It's completed. It's accomplished. There's nothing you and I can add to something that's finished. He wants you to trust in what he did, not what you think you can do for God. Turn to him and be saved. Cry out to him for salvation, and he will save you. He will extend that unexpected grace to you 
And one day, he will take you to be with himself. And when you stand before him, it will not be for sin. That's been taken care of at the cross. It'll be for reward, according to the scriptures. God wants others to be part of that blessing. Do you want to be part of that blessing? The choice is yours to make. We've seen that God is sovereign in justice and judgment, and he knows everything that we do. Please consider, as you go from here, that he sees and knows everything that you do, and that we all will give an account one way or the other to him. God has found out our iniquity, but the good news is he has dealt with that in Jesus Christ, and he also, not only our sins, but our deeds, he knows as well. So today, we realize that God always knows what you do and even think. The psalmist said, before there's a word on my lips, thou, O Lord, knowest it. God knows it before we even speak. And will you consider that one day, you will give an account to God for everything that you do and think. Please, I hope you take this to heart, and I hope it changes the way you live your life, that you live it for him and his glory in gratitude for what he did on the cross in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you are such an amazing, gracious God that you would give your only begotten son the true love of your heart to die and be judged for your enemies so that you could make your enemies your children in Christ. And so we thank you so much for the precious gospel of our Lord we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did, that you were willing to give up everything that you had, all the riches and glory to become poor for our sake so that we might become rich. We are so grateful to you. We thank you. We pray that you would remind us each day, each hour, each moment that you are there with us, watching, and you know all. And may we be changed by this precious truth of your word so that our lives bring you more honor and glory. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.